They don't like him at all. And so when they ask Jesus for a meal, Jesus says, sure. I don't think I'd go. And you think any one of his 12 disciples would be calling out from the back, it's a trap. <laughs> but Jesus, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's not, he's not a dummy. He's not a naive. He's going to go over to the home turf of one of the leading Pharisees for tea. And he has an agenda. You know it's a trap by the way the story is set up for you. If you have it open with you there, Luke chapter 14, uh, in this very first scene. There's three scenes in this story, and the first of them is in verse 1. Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. It just happens to be that directly seated in front of Jesus is this man who's not well. Our newer translations describe him as having a a body that's swollen with fluid. The older translations called it dropsy. Uh, The medical term, I think, is called edema. It could be a symptom of heart failure. It could be any number of infections. But your body is being swollen with fluid that's painful. It's not easy to treat. And if you can imagine, it makes it difficult to move around. It, It eventually puts lots of strain on different organs of your body. And if left untreated... It's a pretty slow and a pretty painful way to die. And so here is a sick man, a really sick man, seated in front of Jesus, in front of the renowned miracle-working healer. And you kind of see where this story is going, don't you? Only in this scene, we're told from the beginning, the Pharisees are watching closely because they want to see a miracle. They've invited Jesus here especially, and I suspect they've even invited this sick man here especially. Seated him right in front of Jesus especially too, but not out of benevolence. I think they're using the sick man as bait, because there's a good chance Jesus is going to heal him, and this day that it's all playing out on, this day is the Sabbath day, isn't it? The Jewish day of rest, and you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So Jesus... Are you going to heal? Are you going to do this work in the way they define things? Because healing is work. Are you going to work your miracles and so break the Sabbath, Jesus? Because the minute he does, you bet they've got witnesses there who will denounce him to the crowds right away, won't they? They'll spread the word that he's someone who disregards the law of Moses, and so he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He's not worth listening to because he doesn't even keep the law. He's a Sabbath breaker, one of the famous Ten Commandments handed down for centuries. Your move, Jesus. Jesus is aware of what they're trying to do, I think, but he's also compassionate, isn't he? Here is a man who is sick, maybe dying. All their plotting and scheming aside, which apparently you're allowed to do on the Sabbath, Here in front of him is someone who is really suffering. And Jesus doesn't address the sick man because he knows who's pulling the strings. He straight away actually addresses the law experts and the Pharisees, asking them a direct question, which makes explicit for everyone. uh, And they can see what the heart of the issue really is. Jesus doesn't play sweet secret squirrel. He's not interested in their traps or their attempts to malign his name. The real question is, verse 3, is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath or not. 
Surely, teachers and experts in the law, surely you know. And Pharisees, you who pride yourself in the strictest adherence to the law, can you tell me the answer to this simple question? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they say, nothing. Because they weren't expected to be asked that question, were they? They were hoping that Jesus would either heal the man, so they could denounce him, or if Jesus doesn't heal the man, then he's a heartless, uncompassionate person. It's a lose-lose situation, and it's a pretty good trap. But Jesus turns the table on him. He asks them, is it lawful? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? And they can't say anything, can they? Because if they say yes, healing is good, then they've lost the opportunity to trap Jesus. But if they say no, healing's bad, then they're the ones being the heartless jerks, opposed to the miracles of God and the work that he's doing in our world. It's not that hard a question, really. If your heart is in the right place, it is bleeding obvious that, yes, healing is a great thing to do for someone on the Sabbath. And Jesus has already said exactly that in his teaching one chapter ago, uh, chapter 13, verse 10, where he heals a woman with a bent back who's been that way for 18 years, doing that on the Sabbath because he says, The Sabbath is all about celebrating freedom from work and freedom from slavery and the terrible conditions that people are in. And healing is exactly that. His healing is setting someone free. And freedom is what Sabbath is really about. God's law gives life. It was never meant to be defined to the same degree as the Pharisees' handbook had it about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Rules made by men in the name of religion Never quite get it right. It's either too harsh or too lenient or just totally off. And they don't express the wisdom of God who's revealed himself. And it's their silence. It's these Pharisees' silence in the story that implicates them. They won't acknowledge that this man being healed would be a good thing, a God-honoring thing because their hearts are bent on such evil intentions. They don't care about the man. And Jesus shames them with this example. That he, and he, the next example Jesus gives, he shames them and shows them how simple the answer to that question should be. Verse 5. Dad, help, I've fallen into the well. How did you get down there? You weren't running, were you? It's a Sabbath. You shouldn't be running. Dad, is there a rope up there? Anything? Can you get someone to help? Oh, yeah, there's a rope here. If I could just lower this winch down and this bucket that we use to get the water out, and you could hold on to that. Well, Dad, you're a lifesaver. I accept, son, you know, today's kind of the Sabbath. I can't operate the winch, because, you know, Sabbath, it's, it's work, winching. And it's a shame you didn't fall down there on a Thursday. <laughs> Look, son, I'll come back tomorrow. You just stay put. Don't tread water too much, though. You don't want to exert yourself. It's a Sabbath day. Don't use that kind of language with me. How dare you call me an idiot? I'll I'll tell your mother. Verse 5. He asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull it out? But again, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they say nothing. Because maybe they're still upset about Jesus evading their trap. Or maybe because Jesus is calling into question something basic they've lived by their whole life. There's the first scene. Uh, It's not really your average dinner party 
etiquette being followed here, like as a host, as a general rule, you're not supposed to, I think, sabotage and try to indict your guests. And as a guest, it's generally frowned upon to attack the worldview of your host and suggest that what they believe in is fatally flawed. But this isn't really your average dinner party. And that icebreaker game that Vic alluded to, you know, you might have done that and get to know your situations where you ask the hypothetical question <coughs> around the table, uh, whether if you can share a meal with somebody in history, living or dead, who would you eat with? And you know, if you're playing with Christians, someone's going to say, Jesus. And they obviously hadn't read this story because having a meal with Jesus looks like risky business. If he's not agreeable, you've you got nowhere to hide. Scene two. Uh, Jesus is still at this meal where he's been invited, and now he's talking to the other guests. But he's not making small talk, he's not sharing interesting stories, he's breaching guest etiquette 101 again. He starts telling everyone where they should and shouldn't be sitting. Verse seven. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told this parable. Someone invites you to a wedding feast. Do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited the both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thankfully, most wedding receptions I've been to have name cards on the table where you're meant to be sitting or a big board that you check your name in when you get in. If you've ever been to a Chinese-style banquet reception, uh, whether they do the 10-course thing, uh, in the Chinese restaurant in Chatswood, the Westfields, I think they call it uh, Gum Fook, I think. And you know the room I'm talking about. It's a big place. Uh, it seats almost 600 people at capacity. And the roof is held up by these giant columns all it's a big big restaurant but in a wedding reception if you're unfortunate enough to be seated behind one of these said columns you can't see a thing the whole night except the food that's in front of you which isn't that bad a thing really but if you wanted to see the speeches if you wanted to see the first dance or some video presentation no way suppose you wandered in early to a wedding reception in Westfield and Chatswood and you spot this amazing seat prime location away from columns, right next to the dance floor. It's front and center, even. And there's this amazing flower display there, decorating this table. And you think, sweet, this is where I'll get the best view of the whole party, where everything's happening. You know what's going to happen, don't you? When the bride and groom come in, they're going to kick you off their table. And you're going to get marched back behind that big column at the back. Don't do that. Sit yourself somewhere modest. Let the friend who's invited you come and find you from behind that column and move you to the great seat where it feels like you belong. And what Jesus is offering here, I don't think is just some dinner party advice about how to look good in front of people. We're told this is actually a parable, which means it's a story that can't be taken at face value. It's something like an analogy or an illustration or something. And I think the clue that we're given is that Jesus tells you it's a, it's a wedding banquet. If you're an experienced reader of the Bible, when you hear the words wedding banquet, 
That's the imagery that's forming in her head. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, isn't he? The kingdom of God with real future orientation. This is, I think, a picture of heaven and eternity, depicted as an endless celebration feast, like you're celebrating the wedding of a king, which for foodies is a pretty good picture. Now, if this is a story about heaven, then I think it means that humility now is the currency that really has weight in the future to come. And it's not those who are puffed up, not those who are making the loudest noise and looking the most important by our world standard of judging these things. They're not the ones who get honoured by God in his future, who's invited you to his banquet. For in verse 11 it says, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It reminds me of another story Jesus told about two men who walk into a temple. One's a Pharisee who struts in loud and proud and looks up to heaven and prays in the hearing of everybody, thank you, God, that you've made me different to other people. Thank you that I'm not greedy, I'm not immoral, I'm not petty. I fast twice a week, I give so much money to the temple. And there's another man, isn't there? The tax collector who was also in the temple, He's standing far away. He won't even look up. And he's got tears in his eyes. And he grips his chest and he, he prays silently. Forgive me, God. A rotten sinner. And Jesus says that this man, the tax collector, he's the one who leaves that place right before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted and forgiven, and honoured in the life to come. Scene three is a conversation between Jesus and the host of this gathering, this one who's invited Jesus to come. And just in case any dinner party etiquette remains intact, Jesus will now go tell his host who he should and shouldn't have invited. Verse 12. And Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner... Do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I wonder if you can guess how many lame and poor or blind people there were at this Pharisee's house. You know, there was at least one sick man, one whose body was swollen and who Jesus healed. But after Jesus heals him, Jesus sends him away, doesn't he? So I suspect the reason Jesus said this to the host was that all around the room now were the beautiful people. You know, the ones that, the ones that you want at your parties. The ones who are important and influential. The ones that are your loved ones. The fun socialites who are good to have at parties, people of taste and class and with your sense of humour, people you enjoy and who tell good stories and who probably have you around at their place sooner or later. We are great at doing good to people who we think can do some good for us. Always bothers me a little when I hear about industry giants giving gifts to government departments who oversee those areas of industry like the sporting minister getting gifts from Racing Australia. It's not against the law. 
I, I can understand exactly why they do it, and that's why it bothers me. But I see myself doing the same thing. I'm conscious when I talk nicer and make more effort with my former bosses and faculty heads than with my other colleagues, let alone some work experience kid. Not that we're always out to manipulate people for our own good, but well, that water's pretty muddy, isn't it? When you're sifting through your motivations and trying to work out whether what you do, your motives are actually pure or not. That is unless you do as Jesus teaches you to do here. When you do something good for someone who can't do anything good back, that's when you truly know your motivations are pure. Bless people who can't repay you. And again, that future orientation, do that and your reward will be at the kingdom of heaven, at the resurrection of the righteous. And that is the banquet you want to be at. Jesus is teaching us to be hospitable. That word actually means to show kindness to strangers. Not just the people you know, not just when it can be to your advantage to do so. And that's a risk. This is about letting your guard down and genuinely inviting people into your world, into your circles of conversation. It's expression, I think, of love. Now, I'll admit I'm not great at this. I want to be better. But this is important. Our following of Jesus should be impacting the way that we do our social relationships. So can we learn to be generous? Can we practice even today, even at morning tea? Not just hanging around with people in our comfortable circles, but looking out for the stranger, for their good, for their comfort, not ours. Now, while this chapter may not have improved your dinner party etiquette, I hope what you have seen is that when you're walking with Jesus, when you have Jesus over for tea, he might just turn your life, your whole world, upside down, or rather, right side up. Amen.